Nevertheless, we do have a word from the Lord today, and I'm just excited to be able to present that word to you. Um, You've noticed over the past few weeks, since the last week of December, actually, our 2020 campaign, as you've heard ad nauseum and will continue to hear, is extending our reach, extending our reach. And as we've talked about that, that has merely been us talking about how we can extend the reach of the gospel, how we can get the gospel into more households, how we can get the gospel into more hands, into more lives, because we believe inevitably the only thing that would change the heart of a person is the gospel. And so what we have planned on doing and what we're doing is speaking a series of sermons that you can see where Jesus and disciples and others have these encounters with people and it's these one-off encounters, these conversations that he has with these people that draws them to himself. And the reason we're going about it this way is because we believe that in all the encounters we have throughout our jobs, wherever we may be at school, wherever we may find ourselves, we have all of these opportunities to get the gospel into people's hands into people's lives. And so we want you to see how Jesus himself, through all these different encounters, has given people the gospel, and that's what he has held in the highest regard. And so last week, my dad spoke about the woman at the well, and we looked at the encounter that Jesus has with that woman, and we see the intricacies of that dialogue with Jesus. And he talk, and he talked about last week even how in that conversation Jesus shared what he had with her. Now for Jesus what he had it is over everlasting life and him offering her everlasting life Jesus is willing to overcome all the abuses and all the offensive um, statements that that woman really gives him and it's really a barrage that she gives him all of these offensive statements and even questions why he would converse with her in the first place. He takes those abuses and those offenses and he still presents this woman with the gospel. And so now we also see Jesus boldly approach this woman. Now, as my dad spoke last week, not only would a man not just approach a woman, but A Jewish man certainly wouldn't approach a Samaritan woman, but Jesus did that. Jesus is both loving, but also bold, and and he does so essentially in a way that when she matches boldness, he gives her boldness back through love. And when we understand how Jesus operates, we must understand that Jesus comes to us as the prophet the priest and the king. The prophet is the one who speaks boldly the truth, the word of God. The priest is the one who is filling and atoning for the sins of the people. And the king is because he is the Lord. He rules over our lives. Now, we see very clearly the prophet aspect of his nature, but it's not prophet in terms of foreseeing the future, but it's prophet in terms of boldly proclaiming and telling the truth of God. And that's what we saw Jesus do last week. In fact, when he does this, even this woman is able to identify that Jesus is in fact a prophet. Now, there is another woman that Jesus encounters, and that's what we'll be talking about today. And we will see by comparison that his response is much different 
than of the woman at the well. And so that's where we get the sermon title today, Two Women, One Savior. Turn me, if you will, to the book of John, chapter 8, starting at verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Amen. Now, when you look (coughs) at this text, you may notice that there are brackets around this text. And I won't go on too long about why there are brackets around this text. But the reason there are brackets around this text is because this was not recorded in the earliest manuscripts. There were some that did record it in Luke, but it wasn't in the original John text. So there are possibly myriad reasons why this wasn't included in the original text, but we won't waste too much time on that today. What we do need to see, however, is the intricate details of this text and its context as it was written, when it was written, and its application for us today, while also comparing this woman to the woman that we saw last week. See, we are given some context here about what this woman is going through. This woman is caught in the very act of adultery and when we are introduced to her, we see that she is being drugged across the area into the streets so that they could charge Jesus against her for not stoning her. And so they present this woman to her. They, to them, to him, and she was caught in the very act. Now, you may be wondering why this is happening specifically here, and you, might, you may be wondering why did they bring this woman to Jesus? Now, let's be clear. They don't bring this woman to Jesus because they think that Jesus is the moral counsel of the day. It's not because they think that he is the spiritual advisor who judges righteously, who judges the law. But they bring this woman to Jesus so that they could invalidate his ministry. Now, you may be wondering, how would them bring in a woman, a sinful woman found in the act of adultery? How would that be invalidating Jesus? Well, they're trying to present Jesus with an issue. And this is it. On one hand, we have seen all throughout the time that Jesus was willing to break barriers down. 
Jesus is willing to overlook certain sins and see people. He's reclining with sinners. He's dining with sinners, much to the chagrin of the Pharisees. We see that Jesus is putting himself in the place of the marginalized in society so that they would be brought to Christ. He even tells us that I didn't come for those who think that they have their own righteousness, but I came for the sick. I came for the sinners so that through me that they would be saved. So if we see Jesus condemn this woman according to the law, then he automatically puts himself at odds with all of those people who had stood in the gap for, who were in fact the marginalized in society just like this woman was. Now, Jesus is also a rabbi, and they know that if anybody knew the law as well as anybody, Jesus knew the law because he was the very epitome of the law made flesh. He was in fact the word made flesh. And so that they think they have Jesus in this compromising position that if he merely says, no, we don't stone the woman, then as a Jewish leader and rabbi, he is denying what Moses has spoke in the law. And he will automatically put himself at odds with all the Jewish leaders in the area as well. And so what they are trying to do is have Jesus be in this compromising position where the Pharisees and the Jews are against him, but so are the people, the very people that he came to save against him as well. And so they want to be able to accuse him of rebelling against the law of God. So they ask him, what say you? What say you, Jesus? Give us your opinion. Now, he doesn't initially say anything. He bends down in the sand, and Lord knows I wish I knew what he was writing, but he bends down in the sand and starts drawing something, writing something with his finger in the sand. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus is the most interesting man that has ever lived. I am in love with everything that he does. He bends down and he starts drawing something in the sand with his finger. But then... Once he gets done, he gets up and he utters what are probably the most famous words in the Bible, words that we have all come to know. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, we have all at some point in time heard this exact phrase when Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, throw the first stone. Now, Many of us have missed the amount of immense context here. Jesus isn't just arbitrarily saying something clever him. Let, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. But let me tell you what Jesus was doing. Jesus was demonstrating to them that in as much as they thought that they knew the law, they thought that they knew the true interpretation of the law, nobody knew the law better than Jesus. And so when Jesus says, Anybody who is without sin, throw the first stone. He is reflecting back to the law where in the law, the requirement to be able to stone somebody was to have been free of guilt from the exact sin that you were condemning people of. See, what Jesus is immediately doing is deflecting the sin of this woman back onto the same sinful people who were probably guilty of the sin that they were condemning this woman of doing. Now, when we first look at this, we think that 
Jesus is some sort of antinomian and he is just allowing this woman to get away with her sin. But what Jesus wants people to wants people to see is that whatever you think the standard of the law is, I give you a higher standard. See, remember in the Bible when Jesus says you have heard in old times, do not commit adultery, which they were accusing this woman of. But what did Jesus say? He said, see, you thought that it meant don't just commit the act. But I come to tell you that if you've even felt lust in your heart, you're already guilty. So perhaps these these men who are stoning this woman are not necessarily guilty of physically committing adultery. But Jesus could see the spirit and the heart of every single one of them. And he knew that there was sinful lust in their hearts as well. And so the very people who thought that they should have been condemning this woman knew one thing, that in order to condemn her, they must condemn themselves as well. So Jesus stands in between, in the gap between their condemnation and the law of God. And so we see the true intent of the law was always a matter of the heart. The law was not for condemned people to go on and condemn more people, but it was for the condemned to see that none of them stood in judgment of others and that we all need our sins to be atoned for. So what does Jesus do? He completely embodies his position in our lives as our intercessor and our defender. He intercedes for us. He is making petition for us with God the Father. But he is also the defender of our lives against Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, who when he brings accusations, let's be real, we know they're true. But what Jesus says is that I came not to condemn, but but through me that the world would be saved. And so that's why he responds with these words. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, when we look at this by comparison to the very bold approach that Jesus took with the woman last week, these are very different scenarios. With the woman at the well, Jesus boldly tells her, I know you've had five husbands and you're sleeping with another man that's not your husband. But when we look at this, we see Jesus is almost liberal in his approach to sin. He doesn't tell her anything. He doesn't say anything about her sin. He just tells her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, when we look at this in the vacuum, it looks like Jesus is just taking some softball approach to this woman. While with the last woman, he was extremely confrontational. But what we want to do here with Jesus is figure out who he is and how his approach to witnessing to both the woman at the well And the woman found in the act of adultery and how we should model our lives after his balance. And so that brings us to our first point for today. Jesus sees sinners. Jesus sees sinners. Now, at first glance, I know you hear this and say, duh, Brandon, we know that Jesus sees sinners. 
But I want you to understand what I mean by Jesus sees sinners. When we tend to think of evangelism and sharing the gospel, many times we think that there is a catch-all approach to how we should address people in their sin. But the gospel requires us to be flexible. Listen, are there times that we absolutely should be bold and, and tell a person, I am very aware of the sin in your life? Absolutely. But are there times that we respond with compassionate love and grace to people who have already been shamed and guilted and beaten up by their sins? Absolutely. See, one of the dangers in Christianity is that we always think that the Bible has cultivated us to be extremists, polar opposites on one way or the other. But really, when you look at how Jesus approaches people, he doesn't merely see their sin, but he sees that there is a sinner who needs to be saved from that sin. And so what Jesus doesn't do, what we often do, is merely see the sin and categorize that person based on the sin that he saw. But he addresses the heart behind every single sinner so that the sinner through him might be saved. Listen. If we get up and talk more about the sin than we witness to the heart of the sinner, sometimes it's like we want the sin to be saved and not the sinner. But what is our point when we evangelize is so that through Jesus Christ and the gospel, that sinner will be saved from that sin. Unfortunately, far too often, we only see the person that is guilty of that sin. Only see the sin more than we see that there is a real soul behind that. Listen, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The Bible said that we are image bearers. We bear his image. That means every single sinner that I come in contact with, though it may be a more broken image than I am, they are still an image bearer of God who needs to be saved from their sins. Not only that, at some point in my own life, I was a very broken image of God who needed to be saved from my own sin. So how could I stand in condemnation of someone who is as guilty as I was in my own sin when I needed salvation as well? See, Jesus sees sinners and he also knows that he must approach the sinners as well as their sin. See, when Jesus sees the woman at the well, he is very bold in his approach. Like my dad spoke of last week, he approaches not only a woman, but he approaches a Samaritan woman. Not only does he approach her, but he calls out her living arrangement. He called out her life. Now, was he as bold when he has brought the woman found in the act of adultery? No. But I want us to be able to see why he handles these two things, both different but also similarly. Essentially, what we see is that he matches the boldness of the Pharisees, the hypocritical Pharisees who are in the town at that time. He matches boldness with their boldness. 
He says, all right, you were bold enough to bring this woman guilty in her sin in the middle of the street so that I would condemn her. But what about your sin? How free from sin are you? See, he doesn't take a position on her side or on their side, but he takes the position of I'm against all sin. I'm against her sin and I'm against your sin. But I'm also for all sinners and they all need to be saved just like she needs to be saved. Guess what, Pharisees? So do you. You are not the religious judge that judges her life. Judgment has been reserved for Christ and Christ alone. And the reality is, is that death is in fact the great equalizer of us all because we will all stand before him and he will judge righteously the lives that we live, not us. But not only that, I won't be able to point at somebody else's sin in eternity and say, but look what they did. Look what they did. Because if I reject Jesus Christ as my Savior, I have to give an account for my life and my sin and nobody else's. See, either, either you are one type of sinner or another. You are either a sinner saved by grace or you're a non-repentant sinner. Those are the only two categories. Either God has saved you sovereignly from the penalty of your sin or you're not saved from the penalty of your sin. But either way, guess what you are? Guess what I am? A sinner. Now, only the sinners who have been saved by grace, sins are forgiven. We must do the best that we can to approach every sinner in the way that Jesus would have approached them. He's not looking merely to check a number off of a box or win a convincing argument. But Jesus has one goal in mind. Give them eternal life that is his one goal so let's think about the most recent time that we've shared the gospel with anyone assuming we've done it what was our end game what was our true goal was it merely to prevent a convincing argument that I'm right in what I believe was it merely to present a convincing convincing argument that you're wrong in what you believe Or was it to present the gospel in such a convincing and comprehensive way that they could respond to it and be saved by it? See, whenever we are giving someone the gospel, our hope should be that they repent and believe. There is no other reason we should be presenting people with the gospel. In fact, if you're presenting the gospel with any other motivation, you're probably not even presenting the gospel at all. The one goal we have is so that we can see more people plucked out of the depths of hell and flicked into eternity to spend with God. That is our goal when we witness to people. 
Now, when Jesus approaches them with boldness, he is absolutely sinless. If anyone could have called out every single person's sin, it definitely would have been Jesus. But he doesn't do that. Because he knows that it is just an easy way to anger and even hurt people. When all you have the goal of doing is calling out their sins. See, did he do that sometimes? Yes. We see with the woman that Jesus absolutely calls out specifically what her sin was. But he did it because he knew how those specific people needed to be approached by the gospel. So what am I saying? We should be bold enough to call out what we know, but we should be also compassionate in our approach. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. If you want the bold Jesus that absolutely confronts sin face to face, then you must be willing to accept the Jesus who is compassionate, who is loving, and who is caring. Too many times we try to present Jesus and the gospel as either completely bold against sin or completely passionate and overly graceful, but he's a middle making God who meets us right where we are. He is no more extreme on one side or the other, but his compassion also comes together with his boldness. In fact, you can argue the only reason he is so bold is because he is so compassionate. The only reason he is so confrontational is because he is so loving. Listen, there's a famous quote by an atheist, and I think it's true. How much do you have to hate a person to know that by withholding the gospel from them, they will spend eternity in hell? How much do you have to hate a person to see the trajectory of their life and not be willing to present the gospel to them? How much do you have to love a person to do everything you need to do to make sure they don't spend an eternity in hell? What did Jesus do? Jesus went to a cross for that reason. See, he cannot simply be reduced to this thing or that thing one way or this way. But he meets us in the middle. Now, in the book of Acts, Paul is preaching. And when Paul is preaching, he goes to Thessalonica. And as he's preaching in Thessalonica, he meets some Jewish people there who he knows need to be converted. And when he gives them the gospel, because they knew that he was formerly their brother in the persecuting of the faith, he gives them the gospel. And what do you think they did? Did they accept it? No. They rejected it. In fact, they rejected it so much that they took the other Christians that lived in Thessalonica and they put them in prison because of the gospel that Paul was preaching. Now, Paul leaves from there and then he goes to Berea. 
and he comes to another group of Jewish leaders and he preaches the same gospel with the same boldness and the same compassion. And you know what happened to them? They received that gospel. Now, you may wonder, like, well, why are you telling this truth to us? Because I want you to see this. When we present the gospel in a holistic, grace-laden way, we will have people that both accept that gospel and people who reject that gospel. What I've noticed in many churches, what happens is either we present the gospel in such a way that nobody can accept that truth. Nobody can be saved by our version of the gospel. It is so condemning that nobody will be pulled out of their sin because of that gospel. Or either we do this. We make the gospel so easy and so light that everybody is saved because of that truth. Listen, if you want to know if I'm preaching and teaching the true gospel, you should always know you should have a good mix of people who accept it and who reject it. If every time you share the gospel, people say, no, I, I just I can't do that. that. That's too condemning. That's too harsh. Then you're not giving a real view of the gospel. But also, if every time you share somebody the gospel and they believe it and they become a Christian, you're still probably not a get, giving them an accurate view of what the gospel actually is. See, in order for us to understand, we must see that the bold truth of the gospel is that there is a penalty for all of the sins that you commit. And if you are an unrepentant sinner, when you die, then you will have the eternal wrath of God poured out on you for all eternity. That's the bold part. But that's not where the gospel stops. The compassionate part in that gospel is but Jesus. He came to take away the sins of the world so that you don't have to spend an eternity in hell, but you can have life and life everlasting through his sacrificial death and that wrath that was intended for you. He took it. See, if you give people that view of the gospel, you allow them to make a decision. Either I will accept what Jesus has done for me or I will reject it. But we cannot present the gospel in the way that if I just hand it to you and now you're a Christian and you prayed a prayer and you raised your hand. But we also can't present a self-righteous gospel that says, I got mine, now you get yours. We must present the gospel as Jesus presented it. Listen, when this woman is brought in shame and in ridicule, Jesus embodies his position for us. Now, he isn't just standing in between her and the law, but rather he is standing in between her and condemnation. He says, I didn't come to condemn. Listen, he doesn't just see this woman with adultery stamped on her head. That is what the self-righteous see. He sees a woman in a pool of her own guilt 
in a pool of her own shame, completely beaten down by men who could not judge, judge her righteously, who talked about her, who said what they thought of her, and he tells her that I did not come to condemn you, and neither can they. Why? For the Son of Man came not in the world to condemn the world. Why? Because John 3.17 tells us the world that rejects him is condemned already. He didn't come to condemn the world, but he came that through him the world might be saved. And so even when Jesus confronts the combative woman at the well, he tells her, yeah, I know what you came here for, but I came to offer you living water, eternal life. And that brings us to point number three. Jesus is transcendent. Jesus is transcendent. In each of these women, the love that Jesus leaves them with leaves them humble. It leaves them repentant. But most importantly, it leaves them saved. His love absolutely transcends the shame of the woman at the well and it transcends the guilt of the woman caught in the act of adultery. It reaches beyond the offenses of the woman at the well and it reaches beyond the accusation of the Pharisees. The only way we can see people saved and lives transformed by the gospel, we must unabashedly put on display the love of Jesus Christ. And that means no matter how offensive a person may be, no matter how sinful that person may be, no matter how much that person has hurt you, no matter how much that person has aggravated you, has lied on you, regardless of what they have done to you, the one thing that will save everybody is the gospel. Far be it for me or you to think that I have the ability, I have the right, I have the righteousness to hold on to this gospel just because you made me mad. Listen, Jesus is hanging on a cross with people spitting on him and in the midst of him dying, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't even realize what they do. How can I, a sinner who needed to be saved by that same cross, stand in condemnation of anybody? I have one job, and that's to get people the gospel. Now you may say, well, Brandon, when is enough enough? When have I been offended enough? When have I done too much? When have, I, when have I extended myself? Listen, the good news is, until your dying day, you better give people the gospel. I don't care how mad they made you. I don't care if they shot the bullet that killed you. In your dying breath, you give that person the gospel. Why? Because I want to see all of y'all for the rest of eternity. 
I want to see every person in here for the rest of eternity. Now, I know what you think, but Brandon, look, there's some folks that get on my nerves now. You don't realize there's some folks I don't want to see for the rest of eternity. But what about this? What if it's their sinfulness that makes them the way that they are that makes you dislike them and them dislike you? That means if you give them the gospel, it will transcend their heart and it will transcend their lives. And if we are Christians, you know my quote, the Jesus in me will not tell me not to have anything to do with the Jesus in you. If I'm a Christian and you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit will join us together in fellowship so that when I see you now, I just say, you know what? I can't wait to see you for the rest of eternity. So some of the conversations we don't finish down here, we'll finish them up there. Listen, the the love of Jesus is powerful. It is bold. It overlooks offenses. It is compassionate and it saves to the utmost. Jesus saves people. He saves. He declares to us that if he is lifted up from the earth, if we lift up Jesus Christ and him crucified, what will he do? He'll draw all men to him. Listen. When we have these various encounters that we have with people, we must remember that we are heralds of the gospel. We are literally the voices of Christ here. Jesus is the one who saves and transcends. So when we are sharing, we must exalt Jesus and Jesus alone. It is not about our feelings. It's not about us. But when people see us, they must see him. When people hear us, they must hear him. So much so that when we get done talking about Jesus, they can leave like the woman at the well leaves and run and say, let me tell you, I just met a man. And not only did I meet a man, but I met a man who told me everything about who I am. And what did she say? Because I met a man, come see a man. That is how people should respond to the gospel when we give it to them. They shouldn't see Brandon. They shouldn't see my righteousness. They shouldn't see where I am. But they should see a blooded, beaten Jesus Christ who died for their sins. See, without the effective truth of the gospel, We will never see people repent and believe. But when we as Christians make a commitment to give people the whole gospel, people will be saved. Everyone in this room is a reach extender. Everyone. 
Everyone in this room can get somebody the gospel. Now, regardless of if they go to this church or that church, I don't care. I don't care what church they go to. I care where they spend eternity. That's all I care about. And if God fills these pews, wonderful. But I want to make sure that the pews in heaven are full. That when people get there, that we have filled it up. And I will see face after face after face of people that I was willing to tell the truth about the gospel. We can all look at the example that Jesus set and get the gospel to more people, into more hands, and into more hearts. We must not merely accept doing the least, giving, the little, giving little effort, but we must all be willing to give as many people the gospel as we possibly can. And so if you are in this room, if you are in this room, if you are a Christian, a believer whose sins have been paid and atoned for, there is someone who needs to hear the gospel from you. You specifically. There is somebody God has placed around you that needs to hear the gospel from you. There is somebody that God has placed around you who needs to hear your testimony. Someone is waiting for you. And so my question for you, as we close, how will you respond? How will you respond to the people around you who need the gospel? Let's pray.